0: This is an unexpected pleasure. We're honored by your presence. Yo, G. I I'll be here to see why your homies ain't working their booties off.
1: I assure you, Lord, my men are working as fast as they can. We be seeing if they get this ride going with six foot seven of black staring down. I tell you that this
0: station will be operational as planned. Well, if the man don't think so, can be cruising down here to check out this ride? The Empress coming here?
1: Yeah, and he gonna put a cap in your white ass. We shall double our efforts. Damn straight. And remember, this be CNN.
2: I'm Franklin and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show.
1: That's right. It's our very special edition looking at the Nobel Prizes in physics, chemistry and medicine.
2: And coming up on today's show are Professor Alex Filippenko who'll talk about the prize in physics. And Professor Caroline Kane will talk about the Chemistry Award.
1: In addition, Nobel laureate Peter Doherty will join us to talk about how to win the Nobel Prize.
2: Also, we'll find out what spawning
1: is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on the special Nobel Prize edition of Berkeley Grox.
2: Welcome back to the Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And
1: I guess that makes me Charles Lee.
2: You must really feel like a big winner today, huh?
1: I think today, and this week, in fact, science wins. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. And here on the show, at least we get to portray those winners as paragons of society.
2: (laughs) This is the time of the year when we can feel good about ourselves, huh? I
1: think so. And then, of course, you know, around the holidays when you start drinking, that's also a good time to feel good about (laughs) yourself. But the Nobel Prizes, the Nobel Prizes are indeed a good time to feel lucky to be a scientist. Mm -hmm. You know, every year I get excited just about this time, and I don't know why. (laughs) I always think it's estrus, but in fact, it's the Nobel Prizes.
2: (laughs) Well, nothing can beat the human intellect, huh?
1: (laughs) So, again, another surprising group of winners, and we'll talk with a few professors later in the program about the um, medicine prize, the physics prize that was awarded earlier in the week, chemistry right. prize awarded today. Yeah, of course. So, And, of course, later in the program we'll have... Yeah, that was a real upset, right? <laughs> <laughs> was, well, they're always upsets. I mean, you, you never know who's going to win these things. I always think it's going to be Ian McKellen.
2: <laughs> really? I, I was going to vote for uh, Patrick Stewart.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was going for Samuel L. Jackson, especially for getting rid of all those snakes on the plane.
2: Those M of snakes, right? <laughs>
1: And and of course later in the program we'll have former Nobel Prize winner Peter Doherty. He'll talk about how to actually go about winning such a Nobel Prize. Oh,
2: it's there's actually a formula, huh?
1: (laughs) You know, it's like everything nowadays. It's getting so anybody can win a Nobel Prize.
2: Where's Uh, yours, man? uh,
1: Well, I keep mine in the bathroom. It keeps the door open. (laughs) Uh, Where's yours?
2: It's my pants.
1: It's warm. It helps to promote your manhood, I suppose.
2: (laughs) I guess there's several stories why Alfred Norwell didn't give mathematics prize, right? Why is that? I think one of them was the girl he was interested in had turned him down and gone for a mathematician. I'm not sure if that's just urban legend, but that's one of the rumors flying around.
1: Okay, and hence the Fields Medal was uh, established? Yes, that's
2: the equivalent of the right. Nobel Prize.
1: Right, wasn't this year one of the recipients actually turned it down? Right, or? there were
2: four of them. I think the guy who turned it down was Perelman or something. Does
1: mm-hmm. so not need any stinking medals? <laughs>
2: no, I, I guess you don't really need medals stuff affirm your uh, scientificness.
1: <laughs> <laughs> His genius. That just shows he's above it all. Yeah. <laughs> what I would do is I would actually take it and then I'd sell it on eBay. <laughs> Because I, th- I think he can get as much as, like, a Southwest ticket for it. <laughs> but, uh, then again, he's a mathematician. He doesn't need to go anywhere except the depths of his own mind.
2: <laughs> numbers are just tales, I guess.
1: That was the joke at Caltech, actually, was the youngest non-math major always had to figure out the bill. Oh, yeah. Because by the time you were a senior, you forgot how to do basic math. And if you were a math major, you never knew how to do basic math.
2: <laughs> I never recalled playing any numbers in my math classes there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I seem to recall most answers in the physics class either being zero or (laughs) h-bar.
2: Whatever that is. Yeah.
1: Anyway, we're celebrating science today, so...
2: Yay! Join
1: us in our celebration of the Nobel Prizes. And, of course, later they'll be awarding economics and the Peace Prize and literature. That's not science. Yeah, so I guess only three of my nipples are tingling. (laughs) Maybe I get a fourth one tingling for economics, but... (laughs) Cool stuff. Stay tuned for some pretty cool interviews.
2: We'll come back to Berkeley Grox? Well, according to the most compelling theories, the universe began with a big bang. It was only 15 years ago that the evidence for this event was captured by the satellite known as the Cosmic Background Explorer. And this year's prize in physics goes to Professor George Smoot and Dr. John Mather for their work in detecting this light. Professor George Smoot is faculty here in the Department of Physics here at UC Berkeley and John Mather was a graduate student of Paul Richards at Berkeley uh, many years ago. Okay well joining us right now is Professor Alex Filippenko from the Department of Astronomy here at UC Berkeley uh, who will tell us a little bit about George Smoot's uh, prize in physics. Uh, Professor Phil Winkle, Thanks so much for joining us today. Sure, it's a pleasure.
3: So first of all, could you tell us
2: uh, a little bit about the research that went into uh, Professor Smoot's prize?
3: Sure. Um, it's based on the so-called Big Bang Theory, which suggests that the universe began in a very hot, compressed state about 14 billion years ago. If that theory is true, then there should be, even today, the afterglow of the Big Bang essentially electromagnetic radiation in, in the form of radio waves sort of permeating the whole universe and those radio waves were in fact discovered in the nineteen sixties uh, by arno Penzias and robert wilson and they got the nobel prize for that discovery i believe in nineteen sixty seven what professor smoot showed was that though this radiation is very uniform in the sky There are small variations from one spot to another. So it's a little bit hotter in one region than another. And and these are very minute variations in temperature, because the whole thing corresponds to something like only three degrees above absolute zero. And now we're talking about a few hundred thousandths of a degree variations around that. But that those variations are important because they correspond to slightly over dense and slightly underdense regions of the universe. From which then galaxies and clusters of galaxies and stars and and all of the structure that we know of in the universe arose through gravitational contraction. So really, the baby picture of the universe that he showed, uh, that he that he took, showed the the small variations in density from which we later on arose.
2: And uh, could you tell us a little bit about the uh, the COBE satellite, which was instrumental to getting these uh, baby pictures.
3: Right. The COBE satellite was a NASA satellite that was launched in 1989, and the first great result from the COBE satellite was to show that the spectrum, that is the plot of brightness versus wavelength, of this radiation that fills the universe, um, is that of what's called a black body, sort of an ideal radiator whose spectrum only depends on its temperature. And the temperature corresponds to something like 2.725 degrees above absolute zero. So it's a, it's a very cold universe out there. I mean, you know, here near the sun, you know, the Earth is warm, but we're in a very uh, atypical part of the universe. Most of the universe is very cold, and it's filled with this radiation having this, this perfect spectrum. So uh, John Mather of the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, who is the co-recipient of this year's Nobel Prize in Physics, Led the team that showed that the spectrum was that of this perfect emitter, a perfect thermal emitter, confirming that it probably comes from the Big Bang, the afterglow of the Big Bang, effectively. And then a couple of years later, uh, in 1992, Smoot's team analyzing the COBE data showed the first evidence for these small variations in temperature of order a few hundred thousandths of a degree. So that was the second big breakthrough from the data of NASA's COBE or Cosmic Background Explorer satellite.
2: And so uh, it must be a real honor to have uh, George Smoot at the faculty here. Uh, What's it like working with him?
3: Oh, you know, it's great to have people like that. Of course, many of us have been expecting that he'd get the Nobel Prize for years because this was such a monumental discovery. And I'm very, very happy that he and and John Mather at Goddard have been um, duly recognized. Uh, I know George personally. He's a fun guy to, to talk to. We both, in 1994, went uh, to see a total solar eclipse in Peru together. We were lecturers for a local company called Wilderness Travel that had set up um, some groups of people to go you know, to see this total solar eclipse, and, and we were the lecturers there. So that was a lot of fun, and, and I've sort of just chummed around with him over the years, and he's, he's great fun to talk astrophysics with.
4: Great, do
2: you have any interesting anecdotes you want to share?
3: Um, well... I, I guess uh, there was one time he was wandering around with a patch on his eye because he had had some eye infection or something, but a lot of people called him, you know, the, the Berkeley physics pirate <laughs> for a while there. Uh, and I think he kind of enjoyed uh, this this pirate image with the patch over his eye. I'm not exactly sure what had gone wrong. It was just some, you know, temporary infection or something. Um, and then just, you know, at, at this eclipse, uh, I think he actually went to the site in Chile. It was the same company, but but they set up two different camps. I went to Peru, and he went to Chile, mm. and we we swapped some stories uh, after the trip about how you know people reacted to uh, to the eclipse, and and each of us uh, initially had told some scare stories to people, you know, saying, oh, you know, the, the sun isn't coming back or anything like that. But it, <laughs> of course, you know, it, most of today's educated people are are uh, familiar with the fact that this is just the moon covering the sun and not some dragon or god eating the sun forever you know and, (laughs) and killing us off so um yeah he's just a fun guy
2: well professor filipinko thank you so much for your time and thanks for your comments today sure it's a pleasure and we were just talking to professor alex filipinko on this year's physics prize in a few moments professor caroline kane joins us to talk about the prize in chemistry so stay right there And this year's Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Professor Roger Kornberg of Stanford University on his work with DNA transcription. And joining us right now is Caroline Kane, who will tell us a little bit about his work that led up to the prize. Uh, Professor Kane, thank you so much for joining us today. Certainly. So, uh, are you familiar with uh, Professor Kornberg's work?
4: Yes, I am.
2: And could you tell us a little bit about it?
4: Yes, he's done. Fundamental work in the area of chromosome structure and then in transcription for years and years and years. He was one of one of the first individuals to describe what 's now known as the nucleosome in chromosome structure, and he 's done seminal work in looking at the structure of the chromosome and of these proteins which are involved not only in the structure of the genetic material but also in regulating the access of the gene regulation machinery to the genetic material. In addition, his lab um, in the last several years has devised many, determined many different structures for very large macromolecular complexes that are involved in transcription itself, which is decoding the genetic information, and in transcription regulation. In particular, they've been The pioneers in developing new methods for determining crystal structures of these very large macromolecules interacting with other large macromolecules, so proteins binding to nucleic acids in very large complexes that were refractory to study until the people in his laboratory um, began to develop the methodologies with uh, his input, of course. He also has now spawned several different laboratories doing exquisite work in the structure of the transcription complex, these people have come from his labs, That's Darst, Patrick Kramer, two, are two people who come to mind, who are very well known and respected in the transcription field and were trained by Roger Kornberg.
2: Great. And uh, what implications does it have for, uh, say, medicine?
4: Um, the understanding the structure of the transcription machinery and understanding the regulation of the transcription machinery can provide new targets for experiments that help us figure out what happens when things go wrong. And in terms of medicine, most often it's when things go wrong that you wind up being sick. And so, knowing the, the correct structures of things helps us devise experiments to test what happens when we make changes or mutations in particular proteins or even in the genetic information that contacts the transcription machinery.
2: And do you know Professor
4: Kornberg personally? Yes, I do.
2: Uh, Any uh, interesting anecdotes uh, you have with him?
4: (laughs) If I gave you some of those anecdotes, he probably wouldn't talk to me again. He's, <laughs> he's a wonderful scientist um, and a wonderful individual who has been very sharing of his unpublished information and um, a very warm person in terms of supporting the people who've been in his laboratory and have collaborated with him in the past.
2: Okay. Well, Professor Kane, thank you so much for your time. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to share?
4: Um, nothing else but to congratulate Roger.
2: All right, Uh, thank you so much, Professor Kane. Certainly. And we were just talking to Professor Caroline Kane here at UC Berkeley on this year's Prize in Chemistry. This is Berkeley Rocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Charles talks to Peter Doherty on how to get the Nobel Prize. So stay right there.
1: Welcome back to the Berk and Grok Science Show. Well, the Nobel Prizes celebrate profound achievements in the sciences. Yet, the life of a scientist is filled with many frustrations and side roads on the route to scientific discovery. What does it take to navigate the winding roads of science, and what does it take to win a Nobel Prize? Well, joins us today to talk about his experiences in Nobel Prize-winning science is Professor Peter Doherty. Professor Doherty was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1996 for his work on T-cells and the nature of the immune defense. He operates active research programs at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital and the University of Melbourne. His new book, The Beginner's Guide to Winning the Nobel Prize, explores his experiences in science and offers some advice for those interested in navigating a career in science. Professor Doherty, thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Rock Science Show.
0: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Um,
1: I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about your experiences in research science, and particular the work that led up to your Nobel Prize.
0: Well, my path into science was a bit unusual in that I trained first as a veterinarian, which is kind of unusual, and then got into basic science and made a big discovery in the 1970s that led to the Nobel Prize some 23 years later.
1: Do you feel as if some aspects of your temperament helped you uh, work in the scientific field?
0: Well, you need to be a bit stoical, I think, because you have to stick at it. Anyone who takes on research science, the sort of science that tries to discover things or to find solutions, is going to have a reasonable amount of frustration because if you're trying to do new things, as you can imagine, you're going to fail a lot. So you have to be a little bit emotionally resilient or insensitive. I'm not sure which it is. And uh, that's some of the advice I give in this book. You know, be prepared to stick at it and fail and, and just hang in there.
1: Right. I'm curious if you think the American system of doing scientists is probably somewhat different from uh, how it's done in Australia.
0: It's pretty similar, really. All the successful scientific models follow the American system, really. After the Second World War, the United States put a lot more money into science, which was fantastic. And they did it through peer-reviewed mechanisms so that there's very good judgment and money isn't just handed out on some sort of, uh, you know, we're good mates, good friends sort of thing. So that's been a great system and it's really brought the best science forward. So Australia kind of follows that model, too.
1: Hmm. I guess maybe for those people who aren't familiar with the academic funding system, explain how that works.
0: Yeah, well, the basic discovery type science that really leads to a lot of the big breakthroughs in the U.S. is really funded through federal tax dollars. And in the medical research area where I'm involved, it's funded through what we call the National Institutes of Health Extramural Program. And that probably has contributed more good things in the 20th century than any other single thing, I think. It's been a fantastic enterprise and Americans should be tremendously proud of what's been done in that research activity.
1: Hmm. How is uh, science funding nowadays in the current climate?
0: it's a bit diminished and uh, you know obviously there are financial problems in the u.s. at the moment as per head of population what's also happened is a number of other countries have become very aggressive about pursuing research science and you can see this emerging particularly in the asian economies in china and singapore uh, many countries are talking about it so it'd be a great pity if uh, the u.s. in any sense lost that leadership because of course as we all know a lot of our manufacturing has gone elsewhere so it's really intellectual innovation discovery novelty creativity that's going to drive the u.s economy and i don't think that it's wise to back off in this type of activity
1: mm. what do you think can be done uh, to attract more people into the sciences
0: Plenty of people are attracted into it, but what you find particularly in American research laboratories is a lot of the people that are coming there are coming from countries like China, and there's not as many Americans getting involved as might do so, and so that's one of the reasons for writing this book is really to try and talk to young people and say, "You know this is what this scientific life is about, this is why it's fun and it's worth doing, and this is why you should consider it. and if you've got religious beliefs, well that doesn't necessarily stop you being a good scientist and all, all sorts. Of Those sorts of things. I wanted to talk to just normal human beings, not to some people who are living in an academic ivory tower somewhere.
1: Right. I think one of the main dissuading factors involved for people choosing a career in academia is of course the monetary. Do yeah. there's an issue there?
0: It's a high risk activity. Yeah. I've got some scientist friends who made enormous amounts of money. Yeah. I mean they've discovered something started a company they're multi, multi-millionaires or more and there are those situations but uh, another thing I would say though about science, even if you do train in science and for some reason you don't go on with it it's a very good training because It does teach you to look at evidence. It teaches you to be systematic in what you do. And we see people who are trained in science making their impact in investment banking and all sorts of things. Obviously, it's a pretty unusual way in there. I mean, the reason people do science is because they're driven by curiosity.
1: Mm -hmm. Maybe you can give an example or a taste for what the life of a scientist is about.
0: It's a lot of time really dedicating yourself to trying to go into something in depth and trying to really understand it so if you're going to be a scientist of course you have to train first and learn your discipline of science so there's a fair amount of specialist knowledge you have to get as an undergraduate then postgraduate in a university then of course though you're to some extent progressively on your own as you try to go into things so if you're the type of person who really likes to take things apart to see how things work And you're very sceptical about things. You don't really believe everything that people tell you, but you want to see, hey, what's the evidence for that? Then, Then science is a good way to go. I think the American college system is a very good system mm. because when you leave school, you don't have to make that decision so early about whether you go down the sciences or the humanities or the economics and finance-type pathway because at college, you can take both science and liberal arts subjects. And so I think that's a good system. So the system is in place. The only thing is that I guess it's more the economic thing that uh, turns people off than anything else. Mm. Of course, a lot of people... Go on to medical school or professional school and then come back and do scientific research
1: so you're, you're obviously a very successful scientist having won a nobel prize i'm curious what yeah. insights do you have uh, having gone to that level
0: well you know when you win something like a nobel prize then it tends a little to take you out of science <laughs> because what happens is because the nobel prize has very high profile in society mm-hmm. it's the one thing that people do recognize in the media and so forth about science then you find yourself, you're more a spokesman for science than you were before. You have you have a public voice. I've been doing a lot of that over the last 10 years, which is one of the reasons I tried to put it together in, in this little book, so that you know I could uh, tell people, go and read my book.
1: <laughs> well, I certainly hope they do. I'm curious, what, what do you think are the big questions in science that young people can be addressing? And if well, could-
0: there are enormous problems that need to be addressed. I mm-hmm. mean, the questions and where the discoveries will come from, nobody can really pick that. I mean, you can't pick where a discovery will mm-hmm. happen, but if you think of the problems we're facing the problems to do with global warming, with having to find much better and much cleaner energy sources. There are enormous challenges there. There are enormous challenges in infectious disease, which is my area, immunity. We don't have a d- decent vaccine against tuberculosis. We have no vaccine against AIDS. We don't yet have one against malaria. There are a whole lot of diseases out there. Also, with the enormous advance we've had through uh, molecular genetics and now genomics, the given sequencing the whole human genome there's tremendous potential for new cancer therapies and new discoveries in that area nanotechnology offers tremendous uh, possibilities for medicine and for all sorts of things so there's a lot of scientific challenges that are going on for a very long time in fact it's much more exciting to look at it now than when scientists were looking at back in the 60s. Some of them thought that science was pretty much over. It's clearly not.
1: As you did mention before, other countries are starting to invest more heavily in science. Do you think that there are more opportunities for scientists abroad who are training in the U.S.?
0: (laughs) If if the current grad situation stays as tight in the (laughs) U.S., that could be a possibility. Some countries are really recruiting uh, scientists. It's not likely that'll be the case in the long term, though. I think The US to me is a very sensible and adaptable place and science always has been a pretty high priority. I think people like the idea that you work with integrity and you try and find out something that's true. To
1: wrap things up, maybe you can give the tips on winning a Nobel Prize. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you've got to hang in there. Sometimes you have to wait around for a Nobel Prize for 50 years. That's happened. We waited for over 20. And if you think you've got a shot at one, if you think you've made a major discovery, well, really look after yourself. I mean, don't. if you do any bungee jumping or anything, <laughs> make sure the, the cord's long enough and that sort of thing. Just be careful on tops of mountains and moderate your behavior in that sort of way. So that's one thing. The other is be prepared to fail. I think, and, and to really stick at it over a long period. Don't get too distracted. You've only got so much time in your life. If you spend all your hours on committees, you're not going to do anything creative.
1: Indeed, indeed. <laughs> uh, well, Professor Doherty, I, I do want to thank you for a very fascinating discussion and, of course, talking about your new book, The Beginner's Guide to Winning the Nobel Prize.
0: Well, thank you very much.
2: Well, thanks a lot, Charles, and this is Berkeley Grox, you're listening to here on 90.7 FM, KALX. In a few moments, we'll find out why fish spawn. So, stay right there. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Swedish <laughs> water, Swedish Alpha Nobel here at IKEA, and I'm looking. There's Swedish water. There, there's <laughs> Swedish The fish, they're swimming up a stream. I don't know why they're swimming up the stream. They're spawning, 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 spawning. Why? This is amazing, amazing spawning. With the spin and the swam and the swimming swam. Why don't they get a Nobel Prize for that? Well, at least they get to create more fish. So Swedish spawning procreate.
2: Hmm, and Yoda with this week's question of the week. From across the galaxy with strong force, it admits, hmm, a false artist, but what is it? If you know or think you know, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, hmm, but the force might be just brighter. And that's all for our special Nobel Prize winning edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: That's right. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
2: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmill.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling.
1: And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great Nobel Prize winning day and stay tuned for more music.